and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor In Focus podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of FT Advisor. The debate around active versus passive seems to have been settled somewhat, with most advisors now opting for, at the very least, a blend of both. But that doesn't mean passive investing doesn't raise questions for advisors, particularly in times of volatility, as we have now. In this edition, we're going to be discussing some of the trends we've seen in passive investing in recent years and touch on some of the future directions it might go in. Joining me to discuss this are Anthony Villis, Managing Director of First Wealth, and Tom Poulter, Head of Quantitative Research at Square Mile Research. Hello, both. Hi. Hi. Anthony, we'll start with you, if we may. Why do you um, prefer to invest passively? And, and could you describe your approach to passive investing for us? Yeah, sure. So we use what we call a, an evidence-based passive approach. So we set the business up 10, 12 years ago where we were using a combination of active and, and passive. Um, and I just think over the years, the sort of the overwhelming amount of evidence now suggests that fund managers tend to, active fund managers tend to underperform the index over, over a period of time. So we had what I described as a sort of ostrich moment where we could either bury our head in the sand and just hope that no one saw that data um, and we never had to discuss it with clients or we could front it up and go back to clients and say, look, this is the data, um, we have to make that decision. So we use evidence-based, which means we tilt to certain factors, things like uh, small cap over large, emerging markets over developed, um, value over growth. But yeah, very much a, a passive approach we put in place for all of our clients four or five years ago now. Mm. And the past couple of months from a market perspective have been a bit bumpy. Does that approach change during those periods or do you just keep keep going on? No, nothing changes. I mean, we sort of talk about three things we do. One is financial planning. The second piece is the evidence-based investing. And the third piece is around financial coaching. And a lot of that coaching is just people keeping people on track. So the idea is that we're going to go through periods of volatility, uh, the way to lose money is to react to that volatility and to panic and to sell out. So we're very much a, we remain invested, the strategy doesn't change, and we will just hold clients' hands through that process if they're feeling uncomfortable with the volatility, but nothing changes from an investment perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom, what are some of the big uh, passive investment trends that you've seen in, in recent years? Yeah, so we've probably seen two two key trends over the last couple of years. As mentioned, more and more advisors are are going passive. So a larger proportion of the market is now passive compared to active. So just a little bit of data we run, if you exclude um, sort of ETFs in in the sort of retail UK equity funds, uh, at the end of 2019, there was about 35% in passives, and now that's increased to, to sort of 39%. And we're seeing sort of similar trends across every single sector. So actives still represent the majority of AUM, but increasingly it's becoming more passive. Now, I don't think we're at a point yet, but I do see in a potentially five or six years' time, we're getting a point where passives just become potentially just too big because what happens is at certain rebalance dates. Um, so for example, when the raw, uh, raw mail was added to the FTSE 100 on that date or around that date, you have all these passive managers who happen to buy the stock. And then obviously there was a fund, a stock that was removed from the 100 and that has to be sold. So 
it comes to a point where passives could be quite large, where around these rebalance dates, is there enough liquidity? I don't think we're there yet to be concerned, but that's something to, to keep an eye on. And the second key trend is obviously ESG, responsible, sustainable, whatever whatever word you want to use, which seems to be quite in demand and in focus from a, from a lot of clients. Um, previously, we saw the passive approach to this was very much let's just exclude what i call sin companies so this is sort of gambling tobacco weapons and then what we'll do is we'll just market cap weight the rest of the portfolio increasingly what we're seeing is all the passive providers they are excluding all the the sins companies but they're slightly tilting towards companies with sort of good sustainable responsible credentials so do they have a good governance score social score or environmental score one of the the pleasing things and i know we're going to touching it across later is that um with the inf- pre- previously these type of esg funds did have a slight premium when it came to cost with more and more sort of funds being launched we are seeing that the ocfs of these funds are are reducing they're still slightly more expensive than your bog standard passive fund but we did see so for example lng they've got a future world fund range and they reduced their ocf from around 25 bips to 15 bips a couple of months ago so that's hopefully we'll, we'll see that these offerings become even cheaper Mm. Anthony, how do you, how are you aware of those trends? How are you reacting to them uh, as an advisor? Um, not seen any. I think we're sort of talking further down, like sort of Tom says around liquidity. So I haven't seen any issues with that. But certainly around the ESG, um, we run a we run an evidence based approach, and we also run a, an ESG, which is a sort of evidence based um, removing the worst offenders type of approach with people like you know Vanguard uh, and Dimensional, so similar providers. Um, with just a sort of screen of some of the funds they're investing in. They are slightly more expensive. I guess the biggest challenge that we then have is the next iteration of ESG, which will be a positive impact uh, portfolio. So you're moving from evidence-based, which is purely passive, into ESG, uh, the EBI approach, which is passive. The challenge I have then is to say, well, if we are going to go for a impact portfolio, which is an active fund where they are looking for firms that are actively doing good and making impact, then how do you then square that away with the data that says active fund managers tend to underperform the index? You're then into a conversation around education with a client to say, neither of these things is particularly perfect. Um, You can either remain of EBI and if this, are you better to be a holder of EBI and actively maybe change the, the, the business owner's direction with what they're doing from an environment and a diversity perspective. ESG, where you are removing the worst offenders, which from an investor's perspective might feel well, but those worst offenders are still doing their thing. Or are you looking to target the companies that are doing great things in the environmental space or they have great things around diversity? But I think I don't think there is a perfect solution. I think every client will have a different choice. And I think all you can do as an advisor is to give the pros and cons of each approach um and then let the let the end client decide mm-hmm. and, and tom you, you you touched on um you touched on price what are the big uh, price trends you're seeing at the moment i mean i suppose down is the obvious answer uh to that but what other trends are you seeing and what are they driven by 
Uh, yeah, so, I mean, first, uh, it's been going down. What happened was, especially in sort of the, the major players, in, in early 2014, Fidelity um, came in and they launched quite a number of um, equity passive funds that were very competitively priced, and it did force a couple of the, the major players, LNG, Vanguard and, and iShares, to, to reduce their fees. In the last couple of years, the, the reductions probably haven't been as significant because there is a there's a there's a limit to how cheap you can you can have a passive fund. There have been some that have done it round the edges. So if I'm in a in a passive fund that and the cheapest one is is sort of one or one or two basis points, I think potentially the the trading costs means that I'm not going to do it. When it comes to a point where it's four, five, six I'm then going to consider going into the, the cheapest passive fund. And therefore, a lot of them, instead of trying to gain more assets, they're more, it's more maintaining their assets and having to reduce them if they're uncompetitive by maybe, say, six or seven bips more expensive. Um, unfortunately, there's and some of the work we've done shows that there's still, and in the UK, so we looked it up in the UK, we think there's about 12 billion in UK passive funds with an OCF above sort of 0.3%. Um, and that and that's probably been the same for a number of years. Um, the type of people in them are unlikely to be listening to this sort of podcast, unlikely to use an advisor. They're probably going to be taking it from sort of maybe a high street bank. Um, so there's not a lot that we can do sitting on this this podcast complaining, um, but it is, it is a good thing to raise. I know some of them have said, well, a lot of the time you are going direct with them. Um, but if you've considered, and I know Vanguard have got their own platform for retail fees, which is sort of 15 basis points in a UK fund is six basis points. So you can get all in for, for 21 basis points. So I, I do think anything that's sort of direct, even direct that's above sort of 40 basis points is, is too expensive. And I, I don't know if this is something that the FCA need to look into, but they've probably got a long list of stuff they need to look into as well. So. Mm-hmm. Anthony, how do you balance this? You, I suppose on the one hand, you have to be mindful of, of price, but to what extent do you allow, can you allow price to dictate um, these decisions? Um, it's an interesting one. Uh, Fidelity, we use Fidelity sort of world index in our main EVO portfolio. So it's like, what are you looking to track here? We're looking to track market cap, global equity. And as long as that tracking error is there, um, it really does. That one does come down to a matter of who can provide this at the lowest cost. And I think Fidelity at the time would put it in. I think now even uh, I think we're in at six, seven basis points. Um, slightly different on some of the factor tilts because they are they're probably requiring more research in terms of sort of the, the analysis that goes on. So um, some of the stuff we do with dimensional probably a 30, 40 basis points. So it's about who can provide that market and actually it's the same with the ESG and some of the factor tilts you sort of look at it and there aren't a lot of providers that are actually standing so straight passive there's quite a lot but as soon as you're starting to get into some of the sort of the the more bespoke product that we want to put into the portfolio then there might only be three or four providers so cost has come down and to be fair play to some of the providers that they are we probably get a note every 12 months from one or two of the providers saying we've taken another two or three basis points out of this. Um, unrequested, but gratefully received. And I, you know, I, I always take my house to companies who are passing back savings to investors without having to, you know, but they're not necessarily needing to do it, but they're deciding to do it off their own back. So, you know, that's always good to, to see. Mm. And are investors willing to pay more for a more thematic or bespoke option? Um, 
I think it's about data. Again, I always, as an advisor, it's a this is this is based on what works. So this is all the research that we know. This is from what we see the best way to invest money. So then you're into a conversation around, well, I can pay less and have something that's inferior. Um, it's a, you know it's normally a not a difficult conversation with a client. It's based on data. I think that's the you know go back to when I started my career to you know, 25 years ago. It was always a conversation about how do you invest? Is this fund better than this one? Or is it thematic better than this? Or whatever it is. But now it's, here's the data. It's overwhelming. Do you agree with the data or not? Some people will still want to argue with the data. That's, that's fine. But most people will just go, yeah, it's, you've proved your point. So let's move on to something else now. Mm-hmm. Tom, on that issue of, um, I suppose, bespoke uh, passive options, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of companies have been investing in direct indexing uh, lately, which I suppose is the ultimate bespoke option. Do you, do you see that potentially taking off in a big way? Um, yeah, they might. They might do it to, to to sort of cut their costs even further. I know that the the likes of sort of MSCI and FTSE, their their fees are are pretty significant. Um, you'll probably see the the larger players doing it because they can. Um, it's just whether, um, and it's just whether the the end investor um, is willing to to accept that. Some may be sort of so driven and say, "Look, within our model portfolios, we're benchmark against the FTSE or share, and you, this UK equity benchmark that you've made up is is too different than than they may go against it." I, I do think with broader, wider in, in indexes, the sort of say such as the all share or the FTSE one hundred or the S and P five hundred, it's quite easy to replicate yourself so if they're if they're becoming even under more cost pressure to lower their fees they're going to try try and lower their costs so yeah that's a that's an option unfortunately the the index providers are their costs are going one way and that's up so you will see some of the bigger providers try and combat that sure and um passives have outperformed actives after fees as as we've sort of alluded to tom uh do, do you imagine that this is likely to continue yeah, so I think I think when we have this sort of active passive debate, we need to it needs to be really done on a sort of case by case basis. So asset class or, or region. Some of the just looking this morning, I looked at say just the global equity sector, and over the last five years, the the top passive fund was twenty seventh percentile. Um, so that does show there are a few number of active funds that that can add value. Um, I would probably say that, you know, there's over 5,000 funds that an investor can invest in and, and that needs to lower down because there's not 5,000 funds that can, that can add value. Interestingly, over the, the previous, so the five years from March 12 to March 17, this, the top passive fund was also 27%. So it's something that I think has been going on for a long time. It's just the noise around it has been bigger recently and therefore more people are continuing to realise that actually, do you know what, in certain sectors or regions, you can't add value. I do, one of the things is, is, is uh, North America or US equities is, is a very efficient market. It's renowned for being sort of very efficient and therefore you go passive. Um, North America, US equities has done very well over the last five years and, and I, I know a lot of people in the market saying they, they'll do better because they're more insulated from the Ukraine-Russian war. So if they continue to represent a larger proportion of the global index, that means that ultimately it's harder for global equities to outperform. And therefore, you've, if you can't really outperform with wider global equities, it's you know your whole equity space might as well go passive. The one area I'd probably say that would maybe potentially reverse that is sort of, 
of um, sort of corporate bonds or sort of uh, bonds, just because over the last sort of 10 years, we have seen such a low interest rate environment. The majority of active bond managers have been under rate duration just because of the risk return profile of, of low um, low interest rates. With rates rising, they potentially have this opportunity to add value through their duration calls. Um, and I know that both the, the UK guilt and the UK treasury curve is now inverted. So many people are saying there is sort of recession is coming. I've always the, the main argument to go active in corporate bond is you make you make money by avoiding the losers rather than picking the winners. If we have sort of a recession, there is potential to add value through sort of credit selection. Um, so that's potentially one area. But I would say that if as, as as Anthony's mentioned, if you look at the data, a lot of this data looks at the last sort of twenty five years. We're not looking to suggest the majority of passive, active funds do not outperform, and therefore I can't see why the next sort of five years there's going to be certain conditions that go against sort of twenty five thirty year year data. Mm-hmm. And Anthony, we, we've uh, touching on fees. I suppose the F, the FCA is, has made clear that it views fees as part of the overall value package. That includes advisor fees. If the cost of uh, the cost of investing is is falling, uh, and maybe advisor fees are not, um, does that put uh, the advisor in a slightly sticky situation? Does it make the the, the advisor fees stick out a bit more like a sore thumb? Um, potentially, but then I guess it depends on where you think the value or where you see the value sitting. So again, I'll go back to when we started, and you know, typical portfolio might have been. 2% uh, TR, of which the advisor would be taking half a percent as a sort of pay away um, ongoing. And that's changed. It was 25% of the, the overall fees. Now that's changed. You know, we probably, the first wealth, we might be all in discretionary uh, advisor platform and underlying for maybe 1.4, which first wealth takes 1% to start with, um, scaled at sort of potentially lower end. Um, so the value has changed, and I think the perception of where value sits is with the advisor. And I think you can sort of say, well, the commoditization of evidence-based investing, this is how we can do it. We can replicate that quite in quite a low-cost way. Um, and I think a lot of the value from a good financial planner is building the plan and then keeping us, particularly keeping clients on track. So we talked earlier on about volatility, making sure that clients are going through that process, holding investments at the, the right time, and some of the tax planning that goes around it. So will advisor fees come under pressure there's no doubt they will um you know everything is becoming under pressure everything will sort of gradually go down over time but i think more of the real value in pounds and pence now fits where the, the what i would i'm slightly biased as a financial planner but where is the where is the value added and i believe it's with with the advisor putting the clients into the invest right investment strategies and then keeping them there longer term through through the good times and the bad times sure and, and Tom, to, to conclude, we've touched, I suppose, a bit about where the changes that we've seen in passive investing over the past few years. What are the sort of the one or two um, things that we're likely to see in passive investing over the next few years? So I think I think it will potentially just be sort of the mainstream passive business and usual um, slight reduction in the fees. I definitely think, as, as we touched on earlier, there'll be this this growth in the sort of the, the ESG um, passive solutions. Um, and I do believe that they are potentially a great sort of stepping stone for an investor going from sort of a mainstream fund to on their sort of, I hate to say, but ESG journey. Um, I know we touched on it. These, these solutions are not perfect. Some of them will still have large holdings in names that people will go, how, how can you 
class ESG if you're holding Facebook or Apple, but they are great starting points. Um, they're also sort of, they don't invest in the band and they're, they're going to really reduce their tracking error as we've noticed in the last sort of quarter. A lot of these sort of sustainable funds which have had a growth bias have been really hit. Um, the fact that they've been able to, these passives have not been hit as much compared to the, the wider sector is, is really positive. So yeah, overall, I think, you know, we're just going to see um, fees stay as, as low as possible and, and then the growth in the, the sort of the, the sustainable ESG portfolios. Cool. And Anthony, how how do you see that you're going to be uh, adapting your uh, investment proposition over the next couple of years, if, if at all? I think the answer is we won't. Um, I mean, we just, the, the only thing we will do is monitor the evidence. So if the evidence changes, then we will reserve the right and rightly we will change the, the, the approach. So, I think what you've seen, as Tom just said, we've seen a the comeback of the value tilt, where it sort of it went, it was off for a while. We've seen that come back quite strongly over the last of the twelve months, which is great because it's a revert to trend to see this is something that's worked historically and it's working again. So that tilt is is working. Um, so if the evidence doesn't change, we won't change the approach. The only thing we will do is keep an eye on costs. So if we can replicate one of the funds through taking out you know four or five basis points or whatever it is then we will look to do that as part of our ongoing review but i don't see that there'll be any change i say the the only thing that i really have got on in my mind as a as business owner is the impact investing and how do you build that into the overall proposition for where a client wants to invest in things that are positively looking to do good um does that become a exclusive investment for some clients or does it then sit alongside the EBAI and the, the ESG version? I think for most clients, it'll be a combination. Some, some will have very strong views one way or another. Um, but again, I think the advisor's role is to, 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 to educate people and to give people choice, pros and cons, nothing perfect. Um, but I think the, the key is to do something and give people choice rather than to say, this is all too difficult, so therefore we're going to do nothing. Okay, great. Well, um, uh, plenty of uh, plenty of food for thought there. Um, thank you, Anthony, and thank you, Tom, and thank you for listening and tuning again next time for the next edition of the FT Advisor In Focus podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.